bloody kitchen, a crying baby, and a missing mother. A wife and mother catches a train, and a train of crime follows her disappearance. A scared young boy disappears in the cold, dark night, leaving only a note behind. A disappearance and a death only five days apart. A missing mother, murder, and a suicide. Minister foster parents, an estranged family, and some big secrets. Welcome back to State of Missing. Hello, and welcome back to State of Missing, the podcast that you didn't know that you were missing. Uh, I'm your host, Laura, and uh, today we're going to be talking about Massachusetts. Um, I got seven cases to tell you about today. Uh, a couple of pretty big ones, and the rest are a little bit smaller, unfortunately, but they're all good cases. We're going to start this week out, as we always do, with some pretty big thank yous. Thank you, everybody who listened to both Louisiana um, parts. Um, that was episode 31. If you didn't listen to it, you should. It it was a banger. Mm. Um, also, thank you for any uh, follows, rates, reviews, likes, anything on whatever platform you listen on. I always do appreciate that. Um, I also want to mention real quick before I forget, because I'm going to forget by the end of this episode, uh, I have created an Instagram account for uh, State of Missing. You can find that at State of Missing Pod on Instagram. I'm going to post the same thing I usually post on the Facebook page. I just haven't gotten around to creating a new Facebook page uh, for uh, with a new name in it, at least. Um, so go find us on go find us on Instagram. Follow us there. Um, I post the pictures. Um, if you haven't seen what I look like, uh, maybe I'll post some pictures of myself there so you can see the face of the voice that you listen to. Um, so, uh, like I said, I have seven cases this week. Let's um, go ahead and talk about uh, the stats. So, the Doe Network has 53 total cases listed, with 32 of those being female and 21 being male. The Charlie Project has a total of 95 cases out of Massachusetts, with 50 females and 45 males. And NamUs has a total of 154 cases listed, with 68 females and 86 males. Now, I do want to apologize for this week. Uh, I know I'm a little upbeat. Uh, that's because I drank a whole bunch of coffee. <laughs> I just got off work. I'm trying to record this before I go to sleep. So I'm exhausted, but I'm still trying to, you know, get it in. Uh, so uh, if, you know, my, my mood, my tempo, whatever, changes a little bit throughout this episode, please forgive me. I'm super tired, but I wanted to make sure that I got this episode to you. Um, I've been working a lot lately, so I just kind of have to record when I can record. And this is the only time I can record to get this episode out on time. I'm just, I'm tired and I'm trying to keep it together. So please bear with me. This is going to be a pretty good sized episode. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into it. Anything else I need to tell you, I'll tell you at the end. So that way you can decide if you want to stick around or not. So we're going to go in chronological order for this episode. Uh, this first case takes us to the 60s. And I'll just say that when I was looking through cases for this episode, they had several 
older cases and the women were so beautiful. They just had that classic beauty and not to mention that their photos were oftentimes in grayscale. So I just knew that I wanted to talk about at least one of those cases. This is the oldest female case listed for Massachusetts on the Doe Network. And there she is case number 646DFMA on NamUs. This is case number MP31687. And this is the disappearance of Joan Carol Reich. Although I didn't expect it, there is quite a bit of information about this case. There's even a Wikipedia page. So this case is probably going to be one of the longest, if not the longest of this week. So let's go ahead and just get into it. So Joan was born on August 4th of 1931. She was 30 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 90 now. She's a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was five foot seven and 120 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last known to be wearing a gray cloth coat, possibly Peck and Peck brand, a blouse, a sweater, a charcoal colored wool skirt, a slim platinum wedding band with five diamond chips and possibly a scarf on her head. Her shoes have been uh, variously described as blue high heels, flats, or blue sneakers with white piping. Joan has a filling in her left upper molar and her ears are pierced. When Joan gets nervous, uh, she, may break, she may break out in a red rash on her neck below her chin and the rash often requires medication to clear. So I'm gonna give you some background as provided via the Wikipedia page. And I know sometimes that Wikipedia is, um, you know, iffy with the information, but most of what I got from the Wikipedia page kind of lines up with everything else that I read about this case. Um, so um, I'm just gonna go with uh, the Wikipedia page for most of this, um, most of my telling of this story. So Joan was born Joan Carol Bard in Brooklyn, New York to Harold and Josephine Bard. By nine, Joan and her family moved to New Jersey. In the 1940s, sadly, Joan's parents died in what was later referred to as a suspicious fire. Later in her life, Joan reportedly told an acquaintance that she had been sexually abused as a child. Is this connected? I don't know. Anyway. After the fire and her parents' death, Joan went to live with relatives who formally adopted her. Uh, when Joan was adopted, she took their last name, which was Natras, uh, N-A-T-T-R-A-S-S, -S, I believe is the spelling. In 1952, Joan graduated from Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania with a BA in English Literature. After graduation, Joan went to work in publishing. She worked the ranks and started as a secretary and then later moved to supervise the secretarial pool. She ultimately became an editorial assistant at Heart, Core, Brace, and World, and later at Thomas Y. Crowell Company. In 1956, Joan married Martin Reich, an executive at one of those companies. I don't know which one though. After marriage, 
she left work to raise a family with her husband. The couple was living in Ridgefield, Connecticut when they had their first child, Lillian. The next year, they had a son, David. A couple of years later, the family moved to Lincoln, Massachusetts. They pretty easily became involved in the community there. Uh, Joan became involved and an active member of the League of Women, uh, the League of Women Voters, I'm sorry. And Martin pursued a career as a, at a paper company. Joan talked about becoming a teacher when the children got older. Now, let's talk about October 24th of 1961. On the morning of October 24th, Martin got up pretty early and left the house in his car to head to the airport. He had an 8 a.m. flight to catch, the, uh, to catch to head to New York City. He had this business trip planned and the plan was that he was going to stay overnight in Manhattan and shortly after Martin left for the airport, Joan woke up uh, the kids and made them some breakfast. After eating, Joan brought David to the neighbor's house. Uh, this neighbor, Mrs. Barker, was going to watch David um, and Joan loaded Lillian in her blue 51 Chevy and they headed to Bedford for a dentist appointment. When Joan and Lillian finished at the dentist, Joan took Lillian on a little shopping trip at a nearby department store where Joan paid in cash. While Joan and the kids were gone from the house, milk and mail were delivered. The milkman and the mailman said that nothing seemed abnormal at the Reach home. Joan and Lillian head back towards home. They stop to pick up David at Mrs. Barker's and then Joan and the kids get back home at about 11.15 a.m. Shortly after Joan and the kids got home, a delivery driver for a dry cleaner stopped at the Reach home to pick up several of Martin's suits for cleaning. The driver went into the house to get the suits and everything looked normal in the house and with Joan and the kids. At this point, there is some differences. Um, it is said on Wikipedia that Joan changed from her more formal clothes into a more comfortable blue house dress and sneakers. On the Charlie Project, as I described in the beginning, she is said to be uh, wearing the more formal attire. So they get home, Joan makes some lunch, and the kids eat. Then she puts David down for a nap, and usually he would wake up from this nap around two. At one, Mrs. Barker brings her son, Douglas, over to play with Lillian, since they're about the same age. During this period of time, Joan is in and out of the house because she's doing some uh, pruning to her plants, and then she goes and puts the shears back in the garage and goes into the house. Shortly before two, Joan brings the kids over to Mrs. Barker's house and told them she'd be back. Now Lillian would later tell uh, that she didn't see anyone else in the area at the time. Lillian and Douglas were playing on a swing at the uh, Barker's house, but from that swing set you couldn't really see the Reich house. It should be noted that allegedly Joan never let Mrs. Barker know um, 
that she had brought the kids to play in her yard. At about 2.15 p.m., Mrs. Barker looked out and briefly sees Joan wearing what she thought was a trench coat over her clothes. She saw Joan moving quickly up her driveway, carrying something red without, um, with outstretched arms from her car towards the garage. At the time, Mrs. Barker thought that Joan was chasing one of the kids. Keep in mind, David is apparently still sleeping in his crib, um, taking his little nap. This sighting of Joan in her driveway was apparently the last confirmed sighting of her. About an hour later, the school bus comes around and drops off one of the Risha's other's neighbor's daughter. Um, her name is Virginia. She gets off the bus and as she's uh, getting closer to her house, she recalls seeing an unfamiliar car, possibly a GM model. It was dirty and two-toned with one of those uh, colors being blue. Five minutes later, another local resident who lived on a nearby street said that they stopped while on Old uh, Bedford Road, uh, the, which is the Reaches Road, and he had to stop to let a car back out of uh, Virginia's driveway or the Reaches driveway. They're not really sure which one. Both Virginia and her mother said that there was no car in their, in their driveway at the time that he said he had to stop. So at 3.40 p.m., Mrs. Barker took Lillian back home because she was planning to take her kids out on a shopping trip. Now, Mrs. Barker believed that Joan was home and in the house, so she walks Lillian home and doesn't go inside. She just walks Lily, Lillian to her yard and she began to walk back home, trusting that Lillian had gone inside. Well, Lillian showed back up at Mrs. Barker's at 4.15. When she showed back up, uh, Lillian told Mrs. Barker, mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. David was crying in the crib because his diaper needed changing and Mrs. Barker walked over to the Reese's home and contacted the police at 4.33 p.m. Sergeant Mike McHugh of the Lincoln uh, Police arrived at the house within five minutes. After briefly talking to Mrs. Barker, Sergeant McHugh uh, went into the Reese house. In the kitchen, he found blood smears on the walls. This was the red paint that uh, Lillian was talking about. There was also uh, in the kitchen an overturned table and the, heads, the handset of the wall-mounted phone ripped loose and thrown in the trash can. The trash can had been moved from its usual place under the sink and left in the middle of the kitchen floor. I don't know why, but Sergeant, Mc, Sergeant McHugh believed that Joan may have committed suicide. So he goes and he searches the house for her body. Guess what though? He didn't find her. At that point, he decided he's gonna need some help to search the surrounding area. He had the chief called and said, I think we may need the whole department out here. So the department called local hospitals and asked to be notified if a wounded woman or a woman matching Jane's description shows 
up or asked if, you know, a woman, a woman matching her description had actually been there. But of course, no one had. While this is going on, Mrs. Barker called Martin Reich, uh, Martin Reich's company to find out where he was. When she found out uh, that he was in New York, the Massachusetts State Police called him and told him there was a family emergency and he immediately caught the next flight back. So police are still doing their initial investigation and looking a little closer at the house. They noticed that there was some mail in the mailbox that hadn't been brought in yet and that's what led them to speak to the mailman as I mentioned earlier. In the kitchen though there were some more interesting things. Uh, the phone directory was found opened to the page where you could write the emergency numbers, but there were no numbers written down on that page. In the trash can, they found a liquor bottle and some beer bottles. Um, they asked Martin about this, uh, the bottles later, and he said that he and Joan had finished uh, what was in the liquor bottle the night before. So that is why it was in the trash, but he had no idea where the empty beer bottles came from. What they also determined is that Joan was not wearing the trench coat that she had on earlier in the day because it was in the house. Um, a plainer coat was missing from the house though, um, the coat that I told you about in the beginning. Uh, Joan's pocketbook was still in the house too. Investigators had learned that Joan had cashed a check the previous evening and after her purchases early in the day, she would have had about $10 in cash left. That $10 is reportedly about $90 in today's money. Now let's get into the canvassing of the area by police. Police were able to find several other residents who reported uh, sightings of Joan after Mrs. Barker had last seen her. At 2.45 p.m. that afternoon, a woman wearing clothing similar to what Joan had been seen in, along with a, hang a kerchief over her head tied around her chin, was seen walking along the north side of Route 2A west of its junction with Old Bedford, headed towards Concord. She appeared to be wandering, hunched over as if she was cold, and apparently this person was untidy. A similarly dressed woman with blood running down her legs was seen walking north on the Route 128 median strip in Waltham between 3.15 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., just north of Winter Street. She too seemed disoriented and appeared to be cradling something at her stomach. Another sighting reportedly around 4.30 p.m. had the woman walking south along Route 128 near Trapilo Road. Police also received some reports of the car that uh, Virginia Keene, uh, the girl that got off the bus, had reported in the in the Risha's driveway. Their regular milkman stated that he had seen it there when he made his morning delivery uh, five days earlier. Another neighborhood resident told investigators that she had seen a blue two-tone car parked on Sunnyside Lane, a street that inter intersected with Route 2A near Old Bedford. 
at about 4.15 p.m. She saw a man get out, cut some branches from the nearby woods, and put them in the vehicle. Another man said he saw a light blue 1959 Ford sedan parked along Sunnyside at about 2.45 p.m. Were those sightings of that woman, Joan? We don't know. Was the vehicle that was seen connected? Also, don't know. But let's go back to the house and talk about something else there for a minute. The blood. Now, if you look this case up, you can see pictures of the blood in the kitchen. Um, it's not a horrible sight. Um, there's a good amount of blood, but while there was plenty of blood, it offered no help to investigators about what actually happened. There were blood smears on the kitchen walls and floor, and there were some smears on the phone as well. Here's something that seems like something... Um, there were three bloody fingerprints found. The problem, though, is that Joan isn't around to compare those fingerprints to. Then there was a roll of paper towel on the floor, and there was one that had been used to wipe some blood, maybe off of a hand. There was also a coverall and a pair of underpants that were David's on the floor. Both of those items were bloody, possibly from an effort to clean up the blood. Oddly, though, those coveralls appeared to have been pressed into the floor, kind of like a, a heavy weight, like maybe a body had laid on them for a period of time. So police say of this bloody scene that while it may be a result of a struggle, it seems more consistent with someone staggering around and trying to support themselves after an injury. Now, while we were talking about the kitchen, that wasn't the only place where they found blood. A, uh, a drop of blood was found on the first step of the stairway. Then two more drops were found at the top of the stairs. There were eight drops found in the master bedroom and one drop found near a window in the children's room. There was also a trail of blood leading out of the kitchen and into the driveway. The trail ended at Joan's car. The car was stained in three different places. The right rear fender, the left side of the hood near the windshield, and the most confusing um, to investigators a stain in the center of the trunk. With all of these things that look like clues, police are still a little dumbfounded. They did have a lot of blood, but uh, they couldn't determine where the bleeding started. The evidence supported that the bleeding could have started in the kitchen, upstairs, or in the driveway. Uh, you also, They also didn't know if Joan left on her own or had been accompanied or even carried away from the scene and the way the blood trail ended in the driveway could also indicate that she had gotten into another car what is missing from the scene though is perhaps the biggest mystery of this whole scene there are no bloody footprints so whoever was walking around was either extremely careful not to leave prints or just extremely lucky. So this is the 1960s. So DNA testing wasn't a thing yet, 
but blood typing was. They determined that the blood in the house was type O. Joan is type O. And while the blood in the house looked like a significant amount, it was determined to only be about a half a pint or 240 milliliters for those outside of the US. This amount is not enough for a life-threatening injury. I'll put it into perspective for you. An average adult human body has about 10 pints of blood. Losing a half a pint is losing about 5% of your blood supply. You have a minimal chance of survival when blood loss is over 40%. So if this is all the blood that she lost, then if this is even Joan's blood, if she only lost 5%, she would still be okay. So suspects. Well, uh, Martin was ruled out pretty quickly. Uh, the mailman and the milkman were also ruled out quickly. There was one other suspect that was mentioned. Um, he was a purchasing agent for the National Park Services. Uh, he had visited Joan and some other homes in the area about a month prior. Some women said that he uh, overstayed his welcome, which I interpret as this guy was just a little creepy. But this guy too was eventually ruled out because he had an alibi and witnesses to his alibi. Now there are plenty of theories in this case um, and I'm not gonna get into all of the theories because this has already been a pretty long case. I will mention some quickly though. Um, jo the first one is that Joan had a lover and a physical confrontation resulted in Joan's death that Joan um, the second one is that Joan had an at-home abortion that went wrong and the abortionist panicked. Joan committed suicide. Uh, Joan had an accident in the house and due to blood loss was confused and wandering off. And the possibliest is that Joan left to start a, a new life and staged the scene. Now, I will tell you something that could sway you more in a direction on that last theory. So after Joan disappeared, a reporter was doing a write-up on her case. So she went to the Lincoln's uh, Public Library to look up cases that were similar to Joan's for some background. One of the books that this reporter looked in was about the disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife. The, the reporter noticed that Joan had checked this book out in September, only a month before she disappeared. There was another, in to the, Into Thin Air, about a woman who, like Joan, had left behind blood smears when she went missing. This reporter reported on the findings in the newspaper. Uh, a group of library volunteers decided to look through the book records um, and they discovered that Joan, who was a regular borrower from the libraries, had taken out 25 books over the summer of 1961, many of which had to do with murder or missing persons cases. Now you can just take that information however you wish to. So years obviously passed and continue to pass with no answer about what happened to Joan or where she is. Martin and the kids stayed in the house uh, for a while. Martin never uh, 
had Joan legally declared dead. And in 1975, the National Park Services bought the Reish's house and moved it to Lexington. Martin and the kids moved to another house nearby. I don't know what happened after that to Martin, David, and Lillian, but sadly, Martin died in 2009. Hopefully, he had some closure before his passing, or maybe he found the answers after his passing. Um, well, friends, that's the mysterious case of Joan Carol Reesh. If you know anything about Joan's disappearance, more specifically her possible whereabouts, please contact the Lincoln, Massachusetts Police Department. So for this next case, we're going to head in time to 1971. Now, I don't have a ton about this missing case, but what I do have is one hell of a complicated mess. This is actually going to be a twofer because there is another Massachusetts missing case in the mix. So let's get started with the disappearance of Wanda Maderos Rainey. She is case number 1956 DFMA in the Doe Network, but I could not find her case in NamUs. Obviously, she is on the Charlie Project, though. I'm not sure if I just wasn't looking hard enough or uh, if she's just not on NamUs. I think it's probably the latter. I'm not sure why, though. So here's all I know about Wanda. She is a 25-year-old Caucasian female. The, the date of birth I don't have. I don't have her height or her weight either. She has brown hair and brown eyes and may wear eyeglasses. Okay. I'm going to be super honest with you here. Uh, this case, well, everything surrounding this case has me feeling a certain way. I'm sure you'll understand why when I really get into it, but with most cases, I try to be unbiased and reserve my opinions, but I have a lot of strong opinions here. So if I come a little out of pocket from time to time on this case, I don't apologize. There are plenty of people closer to the situation that are probably a lot more upset than I am, and they absolutely should be. Um, but here's my warning um, that I may present as a little agitated uh, when I tell you this case. And if you don't think you want to hear it, please fast forward. Uh, but please don't because this case um, you should hear about. And I don't really want you to dismiss the details just because um, I get a little agitated. I will try to contain myself though. Uh, so Wanda was last seen on March 12th of 1971. Wanda, Wanda was not reported missing until March 17th, though. So this is five days later. When her husband, Melvin, finally does report her missing, he claimed that he had dropped her off at the bus station um, so that she could go visit family in Warham, Massachusetts. He told their children that their mom would be back soon. Melvin and Wanda were married for six years at this point. And uh, the, here's, here's the problem, right? Uh, Wanda had no family in Warham. Moreover, there was no bus to Warham at the time that Melvin claimed he had dropped Wanda off at the station. Now, I know that y'all are already getting a feeling about how this is going to go. I promise you barely have an idea of what's to come, though. 
uh, let me just tell you a little bit about um, <clears throat> this piece of shit, Melvin. Um, so Melvin was the owner of Five Star Enterprises, or Five Star Enterprise, where he ran a pretty successful trash hauling business. Melvin has a history with law enforcement in a couple of different ways, I believe, but we'll only talk about one, uh, or the one way that can be proven, I guess. We do know that in 1968, Melvin was convicted of arson and sentenced to five years in prison, but was released after only serving a third of that time. I watched a 48, hour, a 48 hours episode related to this case. I'll put the link in the show notes. But apparently Melvin was a fucking firebug. Apparently, if Melvin would get mad or wouldn't get his way, he'd set shit on fire. Apparently, his warning, his line was, I smell smoke. <clears throat> anyway, after Wanda disappeared, 18-year-old Shirley Souza moved into the rainy home. Now, Shirley was Melvin and Wanda's babysitter when Wanda was still around. Wanda, after Wanda disappeared, uh, the claim was that she moved in to help Melvin with the kids full time. Now Shirley had a boyfriend. I think probably more than one, but we're going to talk about one named Charles or Jeffrey Flanagan. Jeffrey was found shot to death in a cranberry bog right across the street from the rainy home. He was only 16 when he was found dead. Shirley was one of the last people known to have seen him alive. Who do you think the suspect is in his death? Well, it's Melvin. So now we have a missing wife and a young man found murdered across the street from his house. So what happens? Not a fucking thing. Police never tied Melvin to Jeffrey's murder or Tawanda's disappearance. So police aren't really doing shit, doing shit. And it kind of seems like they're turning their head to Melvin's bullshit. And this, and most other people surrounded <clears throat> around this case believe the same thing. But this turning of the heads leads to other horrible things. And listen, y'all know I am very pro-police, but when you let a piece of shit like this dude continue to get away with things, uh, it leads to continuous, continue it continuously leads to worse and worse things and we're gonna find out how so uh, on march 31st of 1978 a 17 year old named paul rudolph al i'm sorry always have a difficult time pronouncing his last name alwart it's a-l-w-a-r-d-t anyway uh paul disappeared so how does this connect well five foot ten 150 pound Paul was supposed to testify against Melvin Rainey in a case. Paul was at one point an employee of Melvin. Paul is a Caucasian male with brown hair and blue eyes. So anyway, Paul was a ward of the Massachusetts Department of Youth Services. He was scheduled to testify to a grand jury the day after he disappeared. He was last seen uh, when a police officer put him on a ferry bound for Martha's Vineyard, where he had some family. 
um, you see, police were trying to get him out of town, out of Falmouth, to keep him safe from Melvin Rainey because they knew how he was. Who police had, uh, I mean, they had a feeling that, you know, Melvin would be after this poor kid. Paul never got off that ferry. And with Paul's disappearance, there goes testimony against Melvin Rainey. So not long after Paul's disappearance, something else happens. On August 31st of 1979, Falmouth police officer John Busby is on his way to work the midnight shift in his uh, VW Beetle. Less than a mile away from his home, Officer Busby sees a car behind him. Then the vehicle enters the other lane of travel as if he's if the vehicle's going to pass him. The vehicle doesn't pass though. It matches his speed and then a shotgun is pointed at him and fires. Officer Busby was shot in the face. The lower part of his face was blown off by the shotgun blast. What was left of his jaw was laying on his chest. Even in the condition even in that condition Officer Busby was the condition he was in, he didn't give up. Um, before losing consciousness while officers were on the scene, he wrote a note because he obviously couldn't speak. The note said, not an accident, Mel Rainey. Now, while Officer Busby's story is a heroic one, and uh, I won't go into full detail, I urge you to watch the 48-hour special um, it was really moving. Like I said, um, I'll link it in the show notes. It's called The Year We Disappeared. So Officer Busby does survive miraculously. His, jaw burn, his jaw bones were shattered. Uh, most of his teeth were gone. His tongue was almost completely severed. Um, his chin was hanging to his chest, like I said. Uh, he had a ton of reconstructive surgery to try and fix the damage. Had the uh, rounds that hit him been an inch further or further back, uh, he would have bled to death or died of brain damage. <clears throat> so why was Officer Busby so certain it was Mel Rainey? Well, he knew all about Melvin's reputation and the hold he seemed to have on people, apparently, even police officers in Falmouth. But it seemed like everybody knew about the power that Melvin Rainey had. Um, the issue was that by doing his job, John Busby had become a target of Mel Rainey. One evening, Officer Busby was working traffic for a fatal vehicle accident. The traffic was backed up, and in that pile of traffic was Melvin Rainey's brother, John Rainey. John Rainey was in his semi-truck, and, well, I guess he thought himself too good to wait for the scene to be cleared. John Rainey drove straight through the accident scene, and in doing so, hit John Busby with his truck. Officer Busby went to John's house and arrested him for assault and battery with a deadly weapon. John Busby was shot in the face just prior to the court hearing for those charges. 
We'll put Officer Busby's case aside for just a minute, for just a moment, though. I will just quickly say that obviously Melvin is a suspect in Officer Busby's shooting, but there was insufficient evidence to prove it. That didn't mean that Melvin's hands were clean, though. Obviously, this is a dirty man. Melvin ends up being charged for rigging bids to get a city contract for his company, uh, Five Star Enterprises. His business partner testified against him in this case without being murdered, but Melvin was acquitted of the charges in 1985. Um, so we move forward to 1997. In 1997, Melvin is granted a divorce from Wanda, citing desertion. Then in 1999, Melvin remarries. He marries the babysitter who, had, he, who he had been living with for over 20 years, Shirley Souza, henceforth known as Shirley Rainey. Now, we fast forward a few more years to 2001. In 2001, a couple of things happen. I'm not sure which event came before the other, but they go together uh, to a degree. So in 2001, Melvin was committed to Taunton State Hospital after threatening to shoot a woman. Melvin ends up being diagnosed with Pick's disease. Now Pick's disease is apparently a form of dementia characterized by um, personality changes, poor judgment, forgetfulness, and social ineptitude. After Melvin's commitment, Shirley takes over the running of Five Star Enterprise. Also in 2001, Melvin changes his will. I don't know if the will uh, change was before or after the commitment, though. In the will change, Melvin disinherited his sons and turned over his business and property to Shirley. Now, of course, Melvin Jr. and Todd say Melvin Sr. was incompetent at this period and Shirley took advantage of that fact and the business and property should be theirs. In 2002, Melvin Jr. and Todd go to the police because they have something to say. They told police that their father and their Uncle John were the ones that shot Officer Busby. This is about 23 or 24 years after the actual shooting. Police say, okay, uh, let's check this out. So in 2003, John was interviewed. And wouldn't you know, John didn't deny it. He says, though, that he only drove the car and that Melvin Sr. is the one that shot Officer Busby through an open window. He also claimed that Shirley was also in the vehicle. John also tells on Melvin and says that he is the one that killed Jeffrey Flanagan. Couple of problems though. The statute of limitations was expired in the in Officer Busby's case, so no charges were brought up there. Um, there was also no charges filed in Jeffrey Flanagan's murder because Melvin Rainey was already declared legally incompetent. So because Shirley was the inheritant of Melvin's business, Melvin's sons sue her because they believe it is rightfully theirs, which I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with. But apparently, while this lawsuit is ongoing, Shirley is telling people that she is afraid for her life 
um, going so far as to say that if anything were to happen to her, her stepsons were the were probably responsible. Tiptoe through the timeline to May 10th of 2005 with me. Um, this is 10 days before Shirley was to finally go to court against her steps, her stepsons over Melvin's estate. Can you guess what happened? I know you can. Shirley Rainey is found murdered, shot to death in her garage. Police believed that Shirley was ambushed in her garage by someone who knew her daily routine. You have an idea of a couple of suspects with pretty clear motives, right? Maybe a couple of suspects that handled business the same way their father did. Well, assumptions seem reasonable, but the Rainey boys haven't um, been charged with Shirley's death. Someone has, though. In December of 2011, a man named John Rams Jr. was charged with, with Shirley's murder. Um, Rams was indicted um, when he was already in prison for stealing documents from Shirley's home. But don't get too excited. Uh, Rams was acquitted of Shirley's murder in August of 2014. Here's something interesting, though. Rams and Todd Rainey had been seen dining together in Falmouth days before Shirley was murdered. Not just that, but Rams had an interesting visitor while in prison, Todd Rainey. What does Todd say? He claims that he knows Rams, but hadn't seen him in years. So I can uh, ease a little portion of your mind and tell you that Melvin Rainey Sr. is no longer walking this earth. He died in 2013. There is, however, no comfort in the possibility that his sons may have turned out just like him. There is also no comfort for the families of Jeffrey Flanagan, Paul Aldwart, uh, Shirley Rainey, or for John Busby and his family and Wanda Madeiros Rainey, who started us on this rabbit hole of a case. Those families may now never get answers. If you think you can help get some answers for the disappearance of Paul uh, Rudolph Aldwart or Wanda Madeiros Rainey, you can call the Falmouth Police Department and hope that they are no longer in the business of turning a blind eye. If you know anything about any of the murders I discussed in this case, or cases rather, please contact police to report what you know. Now, I know the last two cases were pretty thick with complications. Unfortunately, this case is not too different. This is the first juvenile case I'm going to cover in this episode, but not the last. Let's talk about the disappearance of Taj Narbonne. Taj is case number 57DMMA in the Doe Network and case number MP6443 in NamUs. His NCMEC number is 603378. Taj was born on June 18th of 1971 and was nine at the time of his disappearance. He would only be 50 now. He is a white male with um, blonde hair and blue eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was four foot tall and only 65 pounds. It is believed that Taj was wearing a faded blue denim jacket, jacket with faded 
yellow sleeves, a light blue and orange long sleeve sweatshirt, or a yellow sweatshirt with a picture of Donald Duck on it, uh, blue dungarees, and either moccasins or no shoes and no socks. Okay, uh, let me just lay some groundwork out for, uh, for you as far as the people in this case are concerned. I'm going to mention Taj's mother. Her name is Annette Dean. Taj was Annette's oldest son, but Taj was, has a, or had a one-year-old brother at the time. And, and at the time, Annette was also about nine months pregnant. When Taj disappeared, um, I don't know anything about Taj's father, but Annette is married to a man named Clarence Dean. Uh, who is Taj's stepfather, obviously. Annette's parents are also mentioned. Um, Taj's grandfather also came up once or twice. Um, so his grandfather's name is Louis Narbonne, and his grandmother's name is Eunice Narbonne. So Taj lived with his mom, Annette, and stepfather Clarence in an apartment on Naples Street in Leominster, Massachusetts. On the morning of March 31st, 1981, Annette wakes up to discover that Taj is not home. It is said that Taj disappeared in the middle of the night from his bed, taking his slippers but no other clothes. Okay, let me set this up for you. Um, in the week before Taj had uh, caught a cold, so he went over to Lewis and Eunice's house to recover. On March 30th, the day before he disappeared, Annette called her parents and asked for Taj uh, to come back home. Eunice and Lewis, of course, are not going to keep Taj against his mother's wishes, and so when Taj was told it was time to go back home, he made Lewis aware that he had no desire to go back as long as Clarence was there. See, Clarence and Taj didn't have a great relationship. Allegedly, Clarence often spoke horribly to and about Taj. Clarence is a black male and Taj is white, so Clarence would call Taj White King. Uh, it's believed that Clarence was also jealous of the love and attention that Annette gave to Taj. So Taj did not like to be around Clarence. In any case, Taj does go back home and Clarence isn't there because he was at work. Taj expresses his worry to his mother. She later described him as paranoid and waiting for, uh, or waiting with bated breath uh, for Clarence to show up, obviously. Annette tries to calm him by telling him not to worry that Clarence wouldn't even be back home until past Taj's bedtime. Taj apparently even, call, apparently even called Eunice that night and asked her to pick him up because he was afraid. Eunice now regrets telling him to go to sleep instead of going pick him up. Taj does go to bed. Now, Annette is afraid of Clarence as well. Um, she was aware of how Clarence and Taj felt about each other. About each other. She was also afraid of Clarence's temper and had been making plans to take the kids and get away from Clarence while he wasn't at home. At this point, though, Annette is a week away from her due date, and she decided to stick it, uh, stick it out, at least until after the baby was born. Back to the night of March 30th, Annette set 
out Taj's clothes for the next day in his room, and Taj goes to sleep. Annette stays up to wait for Clarence. Clarence arrives home around 11.30, and when he gets home, Clarence and Annette have a beer at Clarence's persistence. They had a beer, and then they went to bed around midnight. Around 1.30 a.m. on the 31st, Annette woke up. Uh, she wasn't sure why, and she noticed that Clarence wasn't in bed with her anymore. She got out of bed and went looking for him. She walked down the small hallway in the house and peeked into the living room. Suddenly, Clarence jumped into the room from a screened-in porch and tried to startle her, like as in a joke. When Clarence did this, Annette kind of jumped back into the kitchen and knocked over the empty beer bottles from earlier in the evening. Annette tells Clarence that he better go into Taj's room and let him know that everything was okay just in case the racket had woken him up and he was scared. Annette went back to bed and left Clarence to do whatever he was doing. The next morning, Annette woke up and looked outside expecting to see Taj waiting for the bus. He wasn't there though. Annette then went up to Taj's room and Taj wasn't there either. Some accounts say that the clothes she laid out the night before were gone. Some say that they weren't. Um, all accounts agree that Annette found a note allegedly written by Taj and the note said, I'm going away because I don't want to live here anymore. I don't have to listen to anybody anymore. Annette called Eunice just to check if Taj was with them. Unfortunately, he wasn't. Annette contacted the police. Um, police saw the note and almost automatically called it a runaway. Uh, there wasn't much in the way of an investigation. It wasn't publicized for about a week that Taj was actually missing. Taj's family took it upon themselves to place ads in several newspapers and hire, hire a private investigator to help with the search. Time goes on with nothing, uh, but then something happens. About eight months later, in December of 1981, Clarence kidnapped his then estranged wife, Annette. Uh, he drives her to Leominster Leo State Forest in Fitch. I think it's Fitchburg, and he stabs her. I don't know how, but Annette survives this attack and Clarence is arrested. In 1982, Clarence was sentenced to six years for this attack. Annette says in an article that he only served uh, about two years of this sentence. Clarence and Annette's divorce was finalized in 1982. When Clarence was released, Annette and the kids went into hiding for a while. Annette eventually ended up remarrying and moving to New York. Uh, she goes by Annette Long now. It was discovered that Clarence had some mental illness, so he ended up as a resident in Bridgewater State Hospital. If he is still alive, that is where he is. Here's a few notes. In 1989, police searched a barn on Pleasant Street in Leominster, uh, this barn was about a mile away from his house, but nothing was found. In 2006, police got a tip that led them to search the woods at the end of Christine Street. Christine Street runs perpendicular to Naples Street where Taj lived. They searched those woods for about two weeks with dogs, but ended up with nothing. Clarence was not looked at, at 
or investigated as a possible suspect in the beginning of the investigation. But when the case was reopened almost 30 years later, investigators were surprised to learn that Clarence was never looked at. But at this point, Clarence was already in Bridgewater and any interviews were fruitless because he was often incoherent and his statements were deemed unreliable. Clarence um, still has not been named a suspect. The idea that nine-year-old Taj could run away and has managed to remain unseen for 40 years um, is hard to believe. At nine, Taj was afraid of the dark and the night he disappeared, the temperatures were near freezing. Taj was in the fourth grade when he disappeared. He was described as intelligent, well-mannered, soft-spoken, and mature for his age. He also would visit the school counselor regularly to talk about his problems. Taj never met his biological father, um, and his biological father actually died in 2009. So here we are, 40 years later, with no answers about what happened to Taj Narbonne. Um, we may never have any real answers. Uh, police are now focused on finding Taj or his remains. So if you know anything about Taj's disappearance and or his whereabouts, please contact the Leominster police and don't let it be another 40 years before this boy is found. Okay, this next case is gonna be super short. We're kind of running through them now with the quickness. Um, the first two cases seem to be the longest two cases that I'm going to cover uh, here in this episode. The rest of them are going to be kind of short, but this is definitely the shortest. Unfortunately, there's not much online about this case, but the details of this case or what is released is interesting. Uh, this is the case of James Le Couture. Uh, that's me putting my Louisiana on it. It's spelled L-A-C-O-U-T-U-R-E. He is case number 2229DMMA uh, in the Doe Network, but he is not on NamUs, and I'm not 100% sure why, uh, but sometimes they're not on NamUs. It's, it's weird. So James was born on June 27th of 1953. He was 35 at the time of his disappearance, and he is 68 now. He is five foot five and 130 pounds. He's a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. He has a scar on his right wrist. He also had some dental work, including but not limited to one temporary composite and one large silver filling. He drank Budweiser beer and smoked cigarettes at the time of his disappearance. He goes by Jimmy and was last seen wearing a plaid shirt and jeans. Uh, I don't even know what color plaid shirt it was, honestly. Uh, there's not a whole lot about this case. I'm, I'm telling you, if you look it up, you're not going to find anything other than um, the Doe Network profile and the Charlie Project profile, mostly. So James was last seen on October 29th of 1988. James and his brother David left James's home in Millbury, Massachusetts, to head to Hardwick, Massachusetts and work on a house that David was building in a, in a remote part of the city. 
They didn't make it to that property in Hardwick, though. The, they decided instead to go have some drinks at a local pub. Later that same day, James's wife walks in to see David drunk and asleep on her couch. David told her that James was home uh, as well, but he wasn't. James's wife headed to Hardwick to look for her husband, but didn't find him. When she couldn't find him in Hardwick, she called the police. Police initially thought that James was on a drinking binge and would return home eventually. He doesn't, though. Uh, James's wife knows something is wrong, though, because she knows James wouldn't just abandon her and their three kids. So who has the possible answers to what happened to James and where he is? Are you thinking, David? Well, me too. Well, that turns out to be a large dead end. Within five days after James's disappearance, da uh, David completes suicide. David did leave a note, but it provided no information about James's possible whereabouts. It's really still unclear if David's suicide had anything at all to do with James's disappearance. So over time, police began, began to believe that James met with foul play. Maybe David's death had something to do with that. Um, it's still unclear if David had anything to do with James's disappearance. James's wife is almost certain James is deceased, so much so that she purchased a cemetery plot and a tombstone for him. Now James is declared legally dead, but the case of his disappearance is still unsolved. I'm really disappointed about the lack of details and coverage of this case. It's sad that a family lost two people in a matter of a week. So if you know anything about the disappearance of James in Le Couture, <laughs> please contact the Hardwick Police Department. Honestly, I really contemplated uh, covering this case. I decided to cover it because the events that transpired after the disappearance. This is the case of Michelle Marie Ashley Nicolau. Uh, this disappearance also occurred near the end of 1988. Michelle is a white female born on October 18th of 1966. She was 22 at the time of her disappearance and would be 55 now. She is five foot four and they give a weight range of 100 to 160 pounds. She has sandy blonde hair and brown eyes. Michelle may have two piercings in each ear. There are some variations of the spelling of her last name uh, she may use I'm not going to go through all of them, um, but she may use any similar last name or different spelling of the same last name. And that's all I have as far as a description. Um, there's not a whole lot of definitive information about Michelle's disappearance. The actual missing date isn't even known. It is said she was last seen in November or December of 1988 in the Holyoke, Massachusetts uh, area. At that point in time, she was living with her common-law husband, Michael Nicolau, and three children. Uh, two children were shared with Michael, and one was Michelle's from a previous relationship. So let me tell you about Michael. Michael served as a helicopter pilot in the Army during the Vietnam War. He and seven other helicopter crewmen were charged with murder and attempted murder for strafing civilians. 
the charges were dropped after six months due to insufficient evidence. After this, though, Michael was released from active duty and was sent home. After getting back to the U.S., Michael began displaying symptoms of what we now know as PTSD. He was having nightmares, flashbacks, and angry outbursts. He did receive treatment from the VA uh, for those problems, um, but I, I obviously don't think that he continued through with treatment um, because he does have some problems later. Michael was a decorated soldier with two Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars, and two Bronze Stars for, for his service in combat. Michael was described as um, possessive and controlling of Michelle when they were together. After Michelle started dating Michael, people close to her saw her personality change. Along with that, Michelle and Michael didn't seem to be able to really set roots anywhere. During their relationship, they lived in, a multi in multiple places, including Louisiana, Massachusetts, Virginia, Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Just months before her disappearance in August of 1988, I guess Michelle had enough. She left Michael and took their two kids uh, with her. The child from the previous relationship she had left in the care of their father. Now, this pissed Michael off, obviously. He made contact and confronted various relatives of Michelle and demanded to know where she was. Michelle told her mom that she was afraid of Michael um, and she thought that he would kill her. She told her mom that if uh, anything ever happened to her, her mom should find Michael and rescue the kids. Michael ev eventually did find Michelle after she had left uh, for that time in August. He was able to convince Michelle to come back home with him. Um, Michelle's sister got married in November of 1988, and this is the last time people were sure that they had seen her. In December, Michelle's family went looking for her because they hadn't heard from her and they were aware of the potentially harmful situation that she was in. When they go to the house, they are surprised to see that the home had been abandoned. It was odd, though, because the Christmas tree was up with presents underneath and the refrigerator was stocked with food, but there were no signs of, Mich of Michael, Michelle, or the kids in, in, anywhere in the house. Even the children's books had been left behind. Michelle's family feels uneasy about this, so they report Michelle missing. Nothing happens, though, for over 10 years. I don't even know how hard this case was investigated uh, by the police when, in, when the, report, the report was initially made. But fast forward to 2000. Michelle's mother grew tired of not having answers, so she takes it upon herself to hire a private investigator. This investigator's name is Lynn Marie Cardi, and she is tasked uh, with finding Michelle, Michael, and the children. Cardi does a pretty good job, too. Uh, she was able to find out that after M Michelle's disappearance, Michael traveled to various states, including Florida and Virginia, where his mother and brother lived. Sometimes Michael would have the kids with him, and sometimes he would leave them in the care of relatives and friends. Don't worry, though. Uh, the kids have since been reunited with their mother's family. Now, throughout this time period, Michael had a couple of different stories about where Michelle was. He 
He told some people that she had ran away with a drug dealer, and he told other people that she was dead. In 2001, uh, Cardi was actually able to get a hold of Michael via telephone. He was living in Lutz, Florida then, and Cardi actually conducted an interview over the phone call. Initially, Michael denied even ever know, even, I'm sorry, even ever having known Michelle. He did eventually admit to his relationship with her, but he denied that they were ever married. He tells Cardi that Michelle had run away with a Colombian drug dealer. Before, before the phone call ended, Cardi told, Mich, uh, Cardi told Michael that she was going to give Michelle's mother his phone number. No sooner than hanging up the phone, Michael and his new wife, Aileen, Aileen <laughs> Nicolau, beat feet out of Dodge. I mean, he was probably having her pack while he was still on the phone with Cardi. They ended up relocating to Georgia. About four years later, in November of 2005, Michael allegedly ran Eileen over with a car during an argument. She didn't die then, um, but she ended up back in Florida uh, while she was recuperating far from her injuries. On December 31st of 2005, Michelle shoot, uh, I'm sorry, Michael shoots and kills Eileen. He also killed his his adult stepdaughter. Presumably, this is why Eileen was back in Florida, so her daughter could take care of her while she was injured. Police ended up surrounding Michael to try and take him into custody, and he turned the gun on himself and successfully completed suicide. After Michael's death, authorities announced that they had considered Michael a person of interest in a number of serious crimes, including a series of rape homicides in the Connecticut River Valley. He is one of the top three suspects in those cases. It is said that police plan to test the, his DNA to see if he can be linked to those crimes. But I haven't seen any update about that anywhere. Maybe I didn't look hard enough or maybe results haven't come through because of the backlog. Obviously, Michelle still hasn't been located and at this point, foul play is highly suspected. But here's my question. If Michael did rape and murder those victims, was Michelle his first victim? Maybe he developed an appetite for such things in Vietnam. Maybe he's not guilty of any other murders besides Eileen's and his stepdaughters. Based on what we know though, I highly doubt it. Michelle is still lost somewhere out in the world and perhaps the only person that had any answers is dead. But Michelle still has family, including three children, who I'm sure want to know what happened to their mother. If you can help bring Michelle's family closure, the investigating agency is Holyoke Police Department. So our next case is a juvenile case. This child was only five months old when he disappeared. It's a bit of a sad story, um, but it needs to be told. This is the case of Marlon Devine Santos. Marlon, uh, Marlon is case number 1352 DMMA in the Doe Network, case number MP8956 in NamUs, and his NC MEC number is 856655. As I mentioned, Marlon was only um, five months old, and he was born on June 5th of 1998. He would be 23 now. He's a Hispanic male with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 25 inches long and only 15 pounds. 
So Marlon didn't have the best start to life. Um, when he was born, he tested positive for drugs, which means that his mother used while she was pregnant. On top of that, his mother was homeless and often just left Marlon with people for days at a time. Eventually, Marlon was removed from his mother and placed into foster care. His biological father was seeking custody at the time of, Mar of Marlon's disappearance, but unfortunately, the system didn't work fast enough. Marlon was placed in the care of Jose and Yolanda Castillo in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts. Um, they were foster parents and lived in the 100 block of Eastern Avenue in Worcester. Marlon was last seen at this home on November 5th, 1988. His foster parents didn't report him missing for two days. Okay, so listen to this tale. Yolanda says Jose was on a day trip in New York on the day that Marlon disappeared. She said she left five-month-old Marlon and two other children, aged two and three, in the house alone between 1 and 2 p.m. while she drove eight miles away to pick up her two biological children from school. Yolanda said when she got back home, Marlon was gone, but apparently the other two kids were still there. Instead of reporting Marlon missing, missing um, at that time, she decided to drive to New York to pick up Jose. The last person to see Marlon besides Yolanda was the Castillo's 17-year-old biological child. Um, they saw Marlon around noon on November 5th, but left the house prior to Marlon's disappearance. When Marlon was finally reported missing, the other foster children in their care were immediately removed. S uh, six weeks later, their biological children were also removed. The biological children were eventually returned to the home though. Would you have guessed that Jose and Yolanda were both ministers in 1998? I know I definitely didn't. Um, since 1993, these ministers had cared for 51 foster children. Multiple accounts of neglect and abuse were reported prior to Marlon's disappearance, but nothing was done because the accusations were not substantiated. To make a bad situation worse, both Jose and Yolanda have refused to cooperate with police in Marlon's disappearance. Also, something you may have guessed, Jose has an extensive criminal record in his native Puerto Rico. Something that did come about because of this investigation into Marlon's disappearance. In 1999, Jose was charged with sexual assault um, of three female children. One of these females was his stepdaughter and the other two were former foster children. In 2000, Jose was convicted of assaulting one of the former foster, ch foster children and was sentenced to five to seven and a half years in prison. In October of 1999, police received some information that Marlon's remains were buried on the banks of the Wachusett's Reservoir off of Route 70 in the um, Baston, in Baston, Massachusetts, I think. Authorities searched the area and they found some torn baby clothes, a diaper, and some pieces of plastic. 
They theorized that the baby's body was wrapped in the plastic. No indications of human remains were located. Analysis of those items that were found didn't turn up any clues like hair, blood, or body fluids. As you may have imagined, there were inconsistencies in the Castillo story. There were also some rumors that Marlon was sold in New York. Um, police are investigating Marlon's disappearance as a possible homicide, which is smart, in my opinion. Um, both of Marlon's biological parents have been ruled out as suspects in his case, uh, just in case you were, you know, wondering. Uh, Marlon is still missing, though. With a child so young, the possibilities of what happened are, in my opinion, more limited. It's not like a five-month-old could have ran away, you know, just walked out of the house with his little satchel and started a new life. It's not an option for a five-month-old. At five months old, you can't really do much of anything without the assistance of someone older. Um, I didn't read anything about this, but I'm curious if Yolanda and Jose were ever charged with child neglect because they had left those three kids under the age of four in the home alone. Uh, I didn't see anything about that, but I feel like they should have been at least um, should have been for charged with that. So many unanswered questions in this case, um, but if you have any kind of answers as to what happened to baby Marlon Divine Santos, please contact the Worcester Police Department. Okay, our last case of this episode is our most recent. This case has elements that are similar to cases I've already told you about this week, but there is one small thing that makes this case a little bit different. If you're from Massachusetts, you may know this case well. Um, this is the disappearance of Amy B. Cher. Amy is a white female born on April 22nd of 1964. She was 38 at the time of her disappearance and would be 57 now. She has brown hair and hazel eyes and stood at five foot six weighing 110 pounds. She wears large plastic frame eyeglasses over her hazel eyes. Um, she was last seen wearing business attire. We're going to start Amy's story on October 14th of 2002. Amy worked in the finance department at the Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts. On October 14th, she left work early saying that she felt sick. On the 15th and 16th, the next two days, she called into work stating that she was sick. On the 17th, at about 10 o'clock a.m., Amy's um, boss gets a call from Amy's husband, Robert Desmond, and Robert tells Amy's boss that Amy wouldn't be able to make it in again. The next day, on October 18th, Robert calls Amy's boss again. This time, Robert asks for her email address because Amy wanted to send her an email but was unable to do so herself. A few minutes after hanging up with Robert, Amy's boss gets an email from Robert with Amy's resignation letter attached. Amy never returned to Leahy Clinic, not even to get her final paycheck. Amy's boss feels like something is up, so they contact the police and tell them what's going on. Police went and they spoke to Robert. Robert tells police that Amy had left him voluntary and under 
amicable cir uh, circumstances on October 18th. Robert said he dropped Amy off at the uh, train station in Cambridge at noon and hasn't seen her since. At that time, there was no evidence to suggest that Robert's story was untrue or that any harm had come to Amy, so no further investigation was conducted. So, at the time of Amy's disappearance, she had become estranged from most of her family. Once Amy started dating Robert in um, the early 1990s, uh, she began having differences with her family. Part of the reason that they may have been estranged was that Robert had allegedly made threatening phone calls to her relatives. Apparently, it was so bad that Amy's family uh, obtained a restraining order against Robert in 1994, forbidding him from contacting them. At the time of Amy's disappearance, she, Robert, and their young son were living in Balerica, Massachusetts. Amy's family wasn't aware that Amy had married Robert, much less that she had given birth to their child. The child's existence was a complete secret to Amy's family. Now, while initially Amy's disappearance from work and her home were looked at, um, she wasn't actually reported missing at that time, of course. Amy wasn't officially reported missing until 18 months after she was last seen. It wasn't until her estranged relatives told the police of her disappearance after they had hired a private investigator um, to find her. The private investigator discovered Robert and his and Amy's son living together without Amy. The thought was that Amy wouldn't have just left her son behind. Investigators, of course, go back and they speak to Robert, but he tells the same story as 18 months prior that Amy left voluntarily and he assumed that she was fine. Police don't believe that Amy left on her own, but they don't have evidence to suggest what may have actually occurred. Investigators are, however, investigating Amy's disappearance as a potential homicide. The circumstantial evidence to suggest something sinister occurred does exist though. Amy's family and her coworkers said that Robert has a violent temper and severely abused Amy both physically and emotionally. Allegedly, Amy had to keep Robert constantly informed of her whereabouts, but oddly now he doesn't know where she is and doesn't really care. Amy was very close to her family before uh, Robert came along and then things changed drastically. Since Amy's disappearance, um, her driver's license has not been renewed. The registration on her 1994 Pontiac also hasn't been renewed. And they mention this about her car, but I don't know where this car is. It doesn't say um, it's also missing. And based on Robert's story, it wouldn't be because he drove her to the station. Maybe police do know where the car is supposed to be though. Here's a few more little things about Amy. Um, Amy graduated from Brookline High School, and after high school, she went to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. There, she received a degree in engineering and hospital maintenance. Amy was raised Jewish. Robert is a Christian. And Robert is Amy's second husband. Her previous marriage ended in 1990 after only two years. So Amy, this smart, put-together mother, is still missing. 
the investigating agency is Valerica Police Department because that is where she was known to be living at the time of her disappearance. If you have any information about Amy's disappearance or her possible whereabouts, please provide them with any information and let's get Amy home. So that's it, you guys. That's all I have for Massachusetts in episode 32. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for the continued support. Um, if you love this podcast, even if you only like it, hell, even if you hate it, go ahead and tell everyone you know about it. You can talk shit on this podcast if you want to, and somebody's going to overhear it, and they're probably going to try and listen. And I'm cool with that, honestly. Um, The Instagram page is up and running. I posted um, from part two on episode 31. Um, That's how long it's been up. It's State of Missing podcast on Instagram, so go and look that up. I'll post the pictures and everything when the episodes drop. Um, As always, if you haven't done so already, please, on whatever platform you listen on, if any of it is an option, please go like, favorite, uh, rate, and or review. Um, Those really help with the rankings and, you know, the more listeners, the better. Um, I'm working on... Um, the next episode, uh, which is going to be out of New Mexico. If you have a case that you're personally attached to in New Mexico, if it's somebody you know uh, or uh, a story that you're connected to, go ahead and shoot me an email, a message, anything. Um, Let me know and I'll try and cover it. I haven't selected all of the cases I'm going to cover yet, so any suggestions are welcome. Uh, The Instagram is up, as I mentioned, probably 10 million times before. Uh, The Facebook page for the old name, Never To Be Seen Again, is still up. Um, I do post on there when episodes drop. Um, And both email addresses you can reach me at. Uh, never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com or state of missing pod at gmail.com. I think it's state of missing pod. Hold on just a, t- a second. Let me check. Yeah, it's definitely state of missing pod at gmail.com. So uh, you can email me at either of those email addresses. Um, if you know you have a case that wants to be that you want me to cover, it doesn't even have to be in New Mexico. Uh, I still have. I think 18 states remaining, yeah, 18, including New Mexico. Uh, And even if it's a state I've already covered, listen, we're going to go a second round, a third round, hopefully a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth round. And uh, if there's a a case in any state that you want covered, I'm going to get to it. If you send me a suggestion, if you say, hey, I'm personally connected to this case, can you cover it? I'm going to do it for you as best as I can. I don't need you to do the research. If you want to give me some information, I'm open to it. But I can do all the research. Uh, So if you want to go ahead and do that, you can shoot me an email, shoot me a message on Instagram, shoot me a message on Facebook, uh, however you want to reach me. Uh, But please continue to like share favorite rate and or review the podcast 
uh, and I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and know that these cases were crazy and I'm gonna tell you New Mexico uh, is really turning out to be something I I uh, yeah I haven't even selected all the cases and I can already tell that it's gonna I am going to be completely perplexed by New Mexico uh, but we're going to be perplexed together when we get to it. Hopefully, you not as much as me because, you know, you won't have to look at all of the missing cases. So, But I'm rambling now because I'm exhausted. So um, I'm going to finish it out. Thank you for listening. Um, and please come back next week. This is State of Missing Podcast, and I am going to bed. <laughs>